The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Bethlehem, starting in verse 1 of Micah. Mobilize, marshal your troops. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. They will strike Israel's leader in the face with a rod. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. And he will stand to lead his flock as a shepherd with the Lord's strength and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored around the world, and he will be the source of peace. Uh, This morning I want to share... Uh, about the Christmas story from the perspective of one of its prophecies. And, you know, we, we know that uh, Jesus was miraculously foretold and uh, countless prophecies about his life, a number relating to his, his birth. Uh, and we look at those prophecies looking backward from 2,000 years after the event and from nearly 3,000 years after some of the prophecies a little different perspective. But it's important to really see these prophecies in light of their original context. And so this morning I want to do that looking uh, from the context of Micah. Micah was a prophet who lived about 700 years before Christ uh, during the reigns of people like Ahaz, Hezekiah, uh, and uh, kind of in that period. It was before Israel had fallen, so there was still a northern kingdom called Israel, in the southern kingdom of Judah. But it was right on the verge of Israel's downfall. And the Assyrians were building up armies against Israel. And uh, shortly after uh, Micah's life, uh, the Assyrians came in, and within the period of just a few years, they completely destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, Judah was spared about 120 years before Uh, the Babylonians came under King Nebuchadnezzar and completely destroyed Judah. And, uh, of course, the context behind all this is Israel's stubborn refusal to worship and follow God. And God had done so many incredible things to redeem Israel, to bring Israel out of captivity, to uh, set up Israel as his chosen people, and to put in, in Jerusalem his own temple, his own place where he would be worshipped. But uh, continually, continually, Israel turned away and worshipped other gods. And so, as judgment gets closer and closer, God raises up a number of prophets, from Isaiah, Ezekiel, to Jeremiah, uh, and a bunch of the minor prophets, who spoke warnings of what was about to come. And uh, Micah is one of those prophets who, uh, through the first five books, we're going to read through the first four chapters, is speaking of coming impending judgment on especially Israel, but also on Judah and Jerusalem. And so that's the context. And he comes up to chapter 5, and he's just, he's just finished 
talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, that, uh, that the enemy is going to come right up to the gates of Jerusalem and that the, that the enemies are going to bring judgment even to Jerusalem. Uh, and he begins in verse 1, speaking of this siege of Jerusalem, and he paints this picture. He says, Marshal your troops. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. Right? That actually happened during Hezekiah's reign. Uh, it's not likely that that's what he's speaking of here, although it could be. Um, during Hezekiah's reign, the Assyrian kings came up and uh, laid siege to Jerusalem. The people were trapped inside, and Hezekiah cried out to God, and God miraculously delivered the city at that time. But it was only temporary. As I said, 115 years later, Nebuchadnezzar came, and it was, it was completely destroyed. Um, and what's significant here, and what I want to start with, is that uh, you know, bigger is not always better. You know, bigger is not always better. The, the focus of all, of all of Israel was Jerusalem. Okay, it's where its kings were. It's where its, its capital was. It's where its temple was. Everything about Israel focused on Jerusalem. And in fact, during the time of the prophets, especially after Hezekiah was so miraculously delivered, uh, they started getting this sense that Jerusalem was indestructible. That no enemy could, could ever touch Jerusalem because the temple of God was there. And they had wrongly assumed that God would never let His temple be destroyed. And that, that Jerusalem was, was absolutely untouchable. And they lived wrongly. And a lot of the prophets, especially during the time of Jeremiah, were prophesying, don't worry, don't worry. You know, Jerusalem's safe. You know, God's going to deliver us. You can live as sinful as you want. It's not a problem to God because uh, He's going to protect His city because His temple's there. Uh, but Micah, along with all the others, speak of Jerusalem under siege and speak of the city that's uh, coming under impending doom. And even though it was bigger, even though it was the capital, even though it was, uh, you know, it was the apple of God's eye in one sense, Nothing is free from God's judgment when we turn against Him and rebel. And in fact, later, after, you know, after the exile, after several hundred years when Jesus comes, Jesus Himself says this about Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. But you would not let me. And the truth is that while Jerusalem was bigger, while Jerusalem was looked at as the center of Israel, uh, it was the focus of all of Israel's attention, the reality is Jerusalem was a city under siege uh, in more ways than one. Uh, It was literally under siege during Hezekiah later uh, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. But in Jesus' day, he would say, really, it's a city still under siege. And the amazing thing, when you read the prophets, it becomes very clear that God, as Jesus reflects here, desperately loved Israel. But the reality is sin would never loosen its grip on Israel on its own. It was a city and they were people under the siege and domination of their own sin and foolishness. And there was no hope for Israel apart from a Messiah. 
apart from a Savior who would come and break the power of darkness and sin. Um, and in fact, uh, 70 years, well, not even 70 years, 70 AD, uh, just a few decades after Jesus' death, Jerusalem was again destroyed completely by the Romans. And while it's been rebuilt, while it still is the, the focus of Israel to this day, and, and of the world at large, you know, it's the center of a lot of news stories, uh, the reality is that it is a city under siege. It's big, it's, it is, at times has been glorious, at times the temple there have been really spectacular, just spectacular. I saw a picture uh, this week comparing the temple, Herod's temple to a modern building. It had this picture of a 15-story building sitting next to Herod's temple, and they were the same size. That's how big it was. Glorious place, big, right? Uh, but bigger is not always better. Bigger is not always better. In fact, in this case, their bigness only meant that their kings were more wicked, their worship was more corrupt, and the city was more lost. Right? Uh, it's interesting, though, that while bigger is not always better, uh, oftentimes we are drawn to bigness. Right? We love big. Uh, if you guys have been to Airport Plaza and seen their Christmas tree this year, wow, that thing is big. You know, if Christmas is about big trees, man, they've got it down, right? They got this massive Christmas tree, huge, right? Um, it's, in fact, it's kind of ironic that, you know, there's a Christmas tree at all uh, in this Thai Buddhist shopping mall. But they do Christmas in a big way, right? Because they know that big Christmas means big bucks. And they've got that part of Christmas down pretty well, right? You know, big holiday shopping and spending, and that's, that's a good thing. Um, and really, you know, culturally in the West and now more and more in the East, you know, the bigger the Christmas, the better, right? The bigger the trees, bigger the presents, the bigger and more stuff, the more decorations, the more parties, the more food. You know, as if bigger makes it better. Now, I'm, not, I'm not a Scrooge, okay? Don't think I'm against, like, I love the big Christmas tree at, at Airport Plaza. And I love the decorations. Uh, but does that really make it better? Is that really how it works? You know, we, I think, just have this mindset um, for lots of reasons that the big is better. Uh, we, love to get, we love to be part of a big crowd. Uh, you know, if you are if you are celebrating Christmas all by yourself and nobody is joining you, it's kind of lonely. But the whole world's doing it and it's a party. Well, it's good, right? I think that's why sporting events have such appeal. You know, to be gathered in a stadium, you know, watching these guys smash into each other and do stuff, and and you're joined with eighty thousand other people, or you're watching on television. There's something about the size of it that gives it significance, right, and meaning. And if your team wins, you celebrate that with hundreds and thousands of other people. It gives it weight and significance. Uh, you know, the church is not exempt to this. Uh, more and more churches are moving towards mega churches. You know, it used to be a big church was like three or 400 people. In some countries, a church of 500 would be huge. Well, now, that's nothing. You know, a church of 5,000 really is nothing. Did you know that uh, uh, three decades ago, there were only a handful, a little over a dozen churches in the world that had over a thousand people. Now, there are thousands of churches with uh, attendance well over a thousand. There are hundreds of churches <clears throat> with attendance over 10,000. Okay, it's a big thing. <clears throat> Bigger must be better. 
And uh, the goal of all churches, you read the books, you read, you know, the goal of a church is to get bigger. Because bigger is better, right? Interesting, I don't know about all countries, but I know, I know in the United States, while the number of megachurches is exploding, exploding, the number of churches are three, four, five thousand 5,000 people, the actual number of people going to church in the United States is declining. Okay, so there's more big churches with more people in them, but overall, less people going to church. Less people being reached and impacted by the gospel. And yet we flock to bigger, because somehow bigger must be better. Bigger programs, bigger facilities, more expensive buildings. You know, our church is like really lame because we only have one, you know, PowerPoint projector. If we were really cool, we'd have at least two or maybe five, you know. Because bigger is better, more is better, right? More programs, more stuff, more people. Uh, much like the people in the days of Micah, we're impressed with big. We're impressed with big stuff. Uh, we're impressed with big movements. You know, now, if you read a lot of church and mission, mission stuff, modern day stuff that's going on, you know, it's no longer enough just to be church planting. Okay, if you're planting, if you're some poor guy off in some remote village planting a church, you're like a, you're an amateur. You're a rookie, right? Because now you don't plant churches. You've got to start church planting movements. Okay, you don't count unless you're planting a thousand or ten thousand churches. You know, it's all about, you've got to be doing church planting movements. In fact, it's used so much that it's now abbreviated CPMs. I heard these guys talking about CPMs. You know, CPMs, what's a CPM? Church planting movements, you know. It's a big thing, big thing now. I'm not saying that's not good. Okay, obviously planting churches, planting 10,000 churches is good. We've got this mindset that it's all about big. It's all about huge numbers. That significance and meaning is based on the size and numbers, right? That God's not in it unless it's big, right? That big churches must, must be better because God must be in bigger churches in a bigger way, right? He must be in a church planting movement more than he's in just some uh, humble little work in some little village. Because God's about big. Because we're about big, right? Well, you can go on down the list. And again, I'm not against big. I hope that God saves the world and does things in a big way. And certainly, God does do things in big ways. However, I don't think God is often as is impressed by the size of things as we are. And God doesn't see things or do things the way we do. And Micah reminds us of that. He starts off in verse 1. You know, Jerusalem is under siege. The glory and beauty and, and majesty of, of Israel's great city is under siege. And then he says this. And to really get it, a lot of translations miss this. But there's a very strong conjunction there, translated in some Bibles, the word but. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Uh, it's a very strong comparison. The word that's used there is a word of very, very strong comparison. Okay, Jerusalem in all its glory is this, but you, O Bethlehem, okay, though you are insignificant among all of Israel. Literally the word, and some translations keep this, it's the idea of you are the least of the thousands of Israel. Now the word thousands can mean numerically thousands. It can also mean a clan or a group of cities, uh, probably here it means the idea at least of all of the clans or cities of Israel. But it's kind of like this. Um, you know, Micah's pointing out how, how small and how insignificant Bethlehem was. 
uh, Bethlehem truly was a little town. We sing, oh, little town of Bethlehem. It really was a little town. In fact, even to this day, I've never been there. I've seen pictures. It still is not much, right? Uh, aside from this massive church that's like 10 acres, this massive, huge church that's on the place where they assume Jesus was born, it takes up half the town. Outside of that, it's still just a pretty small town. Uh, back in, in Micah's day, it was especially small. Uh, it was located five miles south of Jerusalem. And it was one of those places, you know, that just had, you know, it was what we call a wide spot in the road. You know what a wide spot in the road is? I, I used to live in a place like this. We lived in this little town that was a wide spot in the road and just had no significance at all. It was one of those places that you could just drive through on your way to somewhere else and not even know you'd pass through this town. In fact, I know that because before we moved to this town, I had actually ridden my bike through it on a long bike tour. And it's one thing to drive through 60 miles an hour, you know, and miss a town. It's another thing for a town to be so small that you pedal through it 10 miles an hour and still miss it, right? <laughs> and uh, when I found out we were moving to this town, I go, you know, where is this? And I realized I had been through it. No memory. Just no memory. Okay, that's Bethlehem. Okay, you could take your donkey through and, you know, miss it, right? Small town. Um, that was Bethlehem. Uh, it's so small. You know, Bethlehem was so small that Joe the grocer was also the town clerk and the judge, which meant you could buy groceries, get married, and pay your traffic tickets all in one visit, right? That was Bethlehem, small place, a place where they had to play. They had to play seven-man soccer at high school because there was only seven kids in the school, right? That was Bethlehem, insignificant. Okay, the least there was nothing about Bethlehem that would have impressed anybody. It was just a little rural village with a bunch of sheep ranchers who would graze their sheep on the fertile hills in that region south of Jerusalem. Um, but God says that uh, the great things come from out-of-the-way places. God loves to do great and huge things in places like Bethlehem. He says, He's out of you, you least of Judah, this insignificant place, out of you a ruler will come, the one whose origins are from the distant past. Um, from you will come a great ruler. And then in the rest of this oracle, the next few verses, he describes the rule and reign of this king. Uh, that one day uh, he would be born, he would be born in this city, he would raise to power, and he would bring back from all over the world the exile of Israel. And that his reign would be in the power of God, and that he would be a shepherd king who would not only rule, but he would be a shepherd. He would be one who took care of his people, who looked after uh, Israel. Um, he would be, in fact, the greatest king honored from around the world. Uh, a lot of prophecies that we look at in the New Testament that we've identified as messianic, as pointing to the Messiah, wouldn't necessarily have been seen so by the Jews uh, during their original context. But this, this prophecy is so messianic that uh, it was undisputed by, by Jews from Micah's day onward as a messianic prophecy. Uh, nobody questioned that this was talking not just about any king, not just some future ruler, but this was talking about the ruler, the Messiah who would come and reinstate Israel as a nation. The greatest ruler 
of all of time uh, would come from Bethlehem. Uh, so, so get the picture here. And you get, and you know, if, you're, if you're reading this in Micah's day, you've got to get the context of this. It's hard for us to picture this. But for them, everything was about Jerusalem. Everything was about big. Everything was about God displaying His glory and power in big ways. But God says, Jerusalem's under siege. Jerusalem is going down. Jerusalem's got problems. But let me tell you about Bethlehem. Little podunk, you know, cow town, sheep town, Bethlehem. That's where I'm going to start and begin doing an incredible work. And from that place will come a ruler who will be the Savior of Israel. You know, the incredible thing is that that really is the way God does things. And uh, it's significant that, that God picked Bethlehem. You know, God could have had Jesus be born anywhere in the world. Anywhere in Israel, anywhere in Judah. And uh, 700 years before its event, God picked and named Bethlehem as the place. Okay, And it wasn't even because... You know, he knew that it wasn't like God looked into the future and knew, oh, well, Mary and Joseph are going to be living in Bethlehem, so that's where it will be. No, no. They weren't living there, were they? No, God has to drag poor Mary from Nazarene, Nazareth, way far away in the north, all the way down to the south, this poor pregnant lady, to fulfill prophecy, right? And not only that, I mean, get this. You know, there's 700-year advance warning. Okay, 700 years... And God can't, you know, call ahead and make reservations so she has a room. 700 years, you know. Uh, why did God do this? <clears throat> okay, there's reasons. Uh, it's not accidental. God picked Bethlehem nowhere because I believe it characterizes or it's a picture of how God does things. Okay, God was very purposeful and intentional about how Jesus came into the world. And of course, we know all the birth story and the birth narrative, and all of it really is pictured symbolically very well in the little town of Bethlehem. There's nothing glorious about it. There's nothing famous about it. There's really nothing outwardly significant about the place or any of the events leading up to and during Jesus' birth. Now, of course, heavenly words speaking, it's huge. You know, the angels appear in the sky. A few shepherds get to see that side of it. But humanly speaking, there's nothing glorious about Jesus coming. And I think that is significant. And I think it really is God communicating that this is how he does things. And that this would be and would characterize the nature of Jesus' life and ministry. And beyond that, it's the character of how God tends to do things in our life. God is not necessarily about bigger. And in God's plan, bigger is not necessarily better. God loves to take insignificant, kind of unnoticed, obscure things and do huge things in and through them. And that's what Jesus' birth in Bethlehem is about. Uh, Jesus himself, God, came into the world uh, mostly hidden, Mostly obscure, mostly invisible. Um, it is how God does things. Uh, God, God loves to come into our world 
uh, not in blazing fire and fireworks, but it says the gospel comes as what? A small seed. A tiny little seed. Unnoticed. Uh, doesn't make a big, spectacular entrance. Uh, as a hidden treasure. You know, it's a treasure and it's there, but most people walk right by it, step right over it, because it's buried, it's hidden. It's not obvious. Uh, throughout the gospel, Jesus uses these kind of metaphors. He comes in a very small, secret, quiet way. And not only did he come into the world, but oftentimes he comes into our life, he comes into the places we do ministry in the same way, doesn't he? He comes as a small seed. He comes quietly. He comes oftentimes in a very small way. Now, of course, it doesn't end there. Jesus came small. Uh, he died in a, in a pretty impressive way. He rose again in an even greater way. And this prophecy, of course, points to his final coming. We know that his work's not done yet. Uh, this points to the day when Jesus returns and he will be king. And when he comes back as king, nobody will miss it. Okay, It won't be small then, guaranteed. Okay, It builds steam. The small seed becomes a great tree. The baby in the manger becomes the savior of the world. Rules and reigns in heaven on high and someday will return and establish an eternal kingdom on this earth. Uh, he will redeem Jerusalem. And he will rebuild Jerusalem. And people from around the world will come back to Jerusalem and someday it will be big and impressive and spectacular. But that's never the way Jesus starts off. The gospel comes slow and small and silent. <clears throat> One last thought. Uh, it, it, when, when Matthew quotes this verse in Matthew chapter 2, it's very interesting because he doesn't actually quote it correctly, which is quite common. <clears throat> Uh, New Testament authors often misquote the Old Testament, which is great for scholars. I mean, you know, this is great ammo for doctoral dissertations and fuel for great debate. Um, oftentimes they misquote it because they paraphrase rather than quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They would, they would paraphrase their own Hebrew understanding. Oftentimes they also quote it in a way that better fits their specific purpose in the context they're, they're quoting it. And I think Matthew does that here. And he changes it intentionally. Notice what it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse, verse 5. Uh, you know, the, the magi, the wise men come. They're, they're wanting to know where Jesus will be born. Herod has no clue. By the way, Herod should know this. Okay, this was a very well-known uh, prophetic messianic passage. Okay, anybody who knew the Bible at all would know this verse. Herod has no clue. He calls in the teachers of the law. They know. They said, well, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. Okay, that's not what it says. Okay, the original says, you are least. You're nothing. Okay, he adds the word not. All right? Matthew has the word, you are not the least. Okay, was he confused? Was he, you know, did he not remember the verse correctly? No, he knew the verse. And Matthew knew perfectly well that every Jewish person reading this would know what the original said. Right? They would know that 
uh, he added this word intentionally to make a point. And what was the point? Well, simply this. You know, it's true that originally you were nothing. You were a cow town, nowheresville, Israel, Judah, that nobody cared about, nobody knew. But the reality is that when Jesus comes there, now you are not the least. Now you are a famous city, great beyond uh, any other city, except for maybe Jerusalem. You're a city possessed and inhabited with great glory because Jesus is there, right? No longer are you nothing. You have incredible significance as the birthplace of the Messiah. And Matthew, in a very subtle way, or maybe not so subtle way to the original readers of this verse, would have understood that. It was not subtle. You're not the least. And there's a great message here for us. You know, we may oftentimes view our work or our lives as not very significant. And, you know, we love to compare things. And in a world where everything just seems to be getting bigger and bigger, you know, uh, publishing companies are cranking out Christian books. And, you know, you're not anybody unless you've sold millions of copies of your book, right? Uh, you're not, your church isn't anything unless, you know, you've got thousands of people. Somebody sent me a, a, a link to a church in, in the States that's doing, it was advertising their Christmas program. Okay, their Christmas program is so big. None of these little kids, little, little kids in little robes singing cute little Christmas songs. No. This program is so big, they sell tickets through Ticketmaster, you know, one of these concert ticket agencies, for like 10, 12 bucks a shot, right? Okay, that's just, there's something wrong with that, right? Just selling Christmas. Uh, and, you know, we can, we, can be, we can get caught in this thing where we compare our work, our ministry, our life, against that backdrop, right? And it's really easy to feel like, you know, what is my life worth? What am I doing? Right? What am I contributing to the world? What am I doing that has any meaning or significance or worth? And in this age when bigger is better and everything's about bigger and more, it's so easy for us as individuals in our, our, our little work our corner of the world, to just get completely lost in it all. And to, to feel, you know, I'm, I'm nothing. What I'm about is insignificant. But one of the great messages of Christmas is, is simply this, that, you know, it's true you are nothing. I am nothing. We're not, you know, planting millions of churches. We're not writing books that are published. Well, if you are, I want to know you. But, you know, most of us aren't publishing books that are sold around the world. None of us probably are on TV with millions of people watching us. You know, I, I do upload, just so you know, I do upload my sermons, and you can download them. And I average like about four a week. <laughs> that makes me feel good. Talk about feeling small and insignificant. Like four whole people really, you know, are tuned in. Uh, it would be easy to think that, but in God's economy, it's not that way. When Jesus shows up, he makes it significant, right? Just by his presence in Bethlehem, he changed the, the, the fame of the city forever. It's worth and significant. So the same thing is true in our life. Whatever it is you do, whatever it is you're about, whatever your life is involved with, if you're a mom raising a child, 
Jesus in the, in the middle of that, it is hugely, hugely significant. If you're working, teaching some handful of pastors somewhere that nobody else in the world cares about, Jesus is in the middle of that. Jesus cares, and it is hugely significant. Right? If you're a student and you're just trying to live Christ in your school, it's hugely significant. Where Jesus shows up, where Jesus is resident, the angels in the heaven are watching. Right? Choruses of angels are singing praises about what's going on in Bethlehem. And they're doing the same thing about the work that Jesus is doing in your life and mine. He comes in small. He comes in seemingly invisible. But that doesn't mean that it's not making a huge impact in the realm of eternity in God's economy. That's what Jesus is about, right? That's what Christmas is really about. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that you are a God who loves to do big things out of things that are very small and insignificant. But that really is much of what the gospel is about. And Lord, like Jerusalem, we all are under siege of sin, held captive to the darkness of sin that that brings your judgment. We praise you that through Christ and through Jesus coming into our life, through his work on the cross, uh, you redeem us. And you take what's broken and lost and insignificant and you restore it and make it new and beautiful and lovely. And Lord, we just worship you. We thank you that Jesus really does make all the difference in any person's life. And we pray that indeed Jesus would shine in and through us more and more. That the light of Christ would be visibly more evident in our life day by day. And by that, our life will have meaning and purpose, and give glory to you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.